with me. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thanks for the opportunity to be here with the people you've given us to love and be loved by. Lord, you know every person in this room. You know their names. You know every hair on their head. You know the things that they came in here with, Lord, the things they're afraid of, the things they're excited about, the things they don't understand, the things they desperately want to understand more. Lord, you know what could keep them from hearing your word today, what burdens, what fears, what joys will take up all the space in our heads and make it impossible for us to hear your still small voice. So Lord, we surrender it to you. We ask that you would give us the grace to lay down at your feet all of our burdens so that we could lean in and listen to your word as we look at a very challenging parable, something that... um, under a God who is not as good as you could cause us to fear. But in fact, Lord, it should cause us to take great joy in the fact that you have rescued us. And so, Lord, we're grateful that we get to explore your word and we pray that you would allow us to lean in and listen, to understand who you are and who you have made us to be. And so we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen. You can be seated. So as OJ mentioned, we are continuing our kingdom parables series. Jesus uses stories, similes, and metaphors uh, to, to talk about what the kingdom is like, the kingdom of God. And he uses these to describe the kingdom to both crowds and to his disciples. Uh, he, he starts out by talking to the crowds here in Matthew 13. He compares the, the word of God to seed falling on different soils, right? And, and only the, the good soil allows the seed to mature and to grow. And he talks about how the kingdom of God is, is like a, a mustard seed, this tiny seed, and it grows into this giant tree where people can find rest and peace. And he talks about how it's like yeast that works its way through 60 pounds of flour. And he talks about how the kingdom is like a man who plants wheat in his field, and then at, at night an enemy comes in and he sows weeds in between, and the two kind of grow up together until the harvest. And then he leaves the, the crowds, and he goes, and he's alone with his disciples. And when he's with them, he describes the kingdom of God as a treasure, that is hidden in a field and a man finds it and he sells everything he owns to buy the field or, or a merchant who, who's looking for fine pearls. And when he finds the one that he's been looking for, the perfect one, he sells everything he has just to keep it. And all of these parables, they, they, they work together. They're not kind of independent of one another. They, they work together to paint a more complete picture of what the kingdom of God is like. And so on the heels of this treasure parable, Jesus shares this final seventh parable about a fisherman's net, which is gonna be our text for today. This is in Matthew 13, beginning in verse 47. If you have your Bibles, you can read along in the bulletin. Matthew 13, verse 47. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on shore, and then they sat down and collected all the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad ones away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is God's word. So as you can see in characteristic fashion, Zach gave me the easy one to teach on. Sometimes he gives me my text and he's like, this is what you're teaching on. And I'm like, why do you hate me? Just, 
did I draw the short straw? What happened here? So anyway, um, a, a friend of mine and I recently took my daughter Ember to a fall festival, even though it's 89 degrees. We like to pretend we have autumn in this state. So we took her to a fall festival and it was actually, it was really cool. They had pony rides and a zip line and pumpkin patch and a corn maze and all this stuff. But one of the things they had was what was essentially a ball pit, like a Chuck E. Cheese ball pit, except instead of plastic balls, they had um, uh, corn kernels, dried corn kernels. So uh, just this whole, Ember called it the corn bath. And uh, so she's playing in there. And I actually thought that was a pretty neat idea until, you know, I'm sitting there, she's over there, I'm sitting there. And the little kid right in front of me, he's maybe three, four years old, uh, he just starts puking into the corn bath, right? And, and his mom, instead of, uh, not like projectile, just like kind of just coming down on his face. Um, and so, but at high volume, you know, there's a lot of it in there. So uh, his mom, instead of taking him out of the corn bath, she just kind of, she just kind of turns him. So he's puking over the side of the corn bath. And I'm like, uh, that's a choice. So, um, and then I look over and I see Ember in the, so I'm looking at this kid and I look over and I see Ember who is making a full body snow angel in the corn bath, yeah. And then I look back at the kid and he still has some vomit coming down his face. And I look back at Ember and I'm thinking, I bet this is not the first incident in the corn bath. So I like grab her out and we run onto the next tent, um, which happened to be a, a, a butterfly garden. And it's kind of cool, you know, that they have all these butterflies on the inside and you go in and, and uh, they give you a Q-tip that's been dipped in some sugar water and you can feed the butterflies and stuff. And, and Ember, you know, she's feeding the butterflies and, and then she looks down onto the ground and she sees a dead butterfly. And I don't know how she spotted it. I mean, it's jet black, tiny little thing. And also, you just, you don't want to look too closely at the ground in the butterfly garden because it's like pet cemetery in there. It's a butterfly graveyard. I don't think the, <laughs> the butterflies are not nearly as satisfied with the arrangement as the kids are. So um, she finds this one and I keep her moving because I don't want her to see, you know, everything else that's down there. Uh, and she takes this butterfly. She, there's a lady sitting at the entrance table who is making charms, um, like tiny little glass jars, and she's putting butterfly wings into them and making them little charms that you can take, pendants or things like that. And, and they're pretty cool. So Ember hands her this, this dead butterfly, and I'm looking at the other ones, and I'm like, babe, do you, do you want one of these to take home to remember the festival? And she's like, uh, yeah, I want that one. And she's pointing to this, black, this tiny little black butterfly that she has given to the lady. And, and I'm looking... And there's like monarch butterflies and these, you know, beautiful like yellow and white butterflies, brilliant purple butterflies. I'm like, babe, don't you want one, you know, one of these pretty ones? And she goes, no, this one's mine. The parable of the net at its core is about separation. It's about judgment. It's about Jesus at the very end of the age looking at every single human heart and revealing which one is his and which one is not revealing which fish will be sorted into the vessel and which will be thrown into the abyss. When, when Jesus Christ, in this kind of context that we need to understand, when Jesus Christ first came to earth as man, the kingdom of God, this thing that he's describing in these parables, the kingdom of God began arriving on earth. Heaven broke through to us in this little baby. It began to arrive, but it has not yet fully arrived. There's more of it coming. Theologians call this the already not yet. The kingdom has come to earth, but it will not arrive fully. It will not arrive in its fullness until Jesus Christ comes back to judge the living and the dead. That's, that's what the net is talking about. That's what this parable is describing. And, and you know, that's, that's why there's still evil on earth. Because yes, the kingdom has come, but there is more of it coming. You understand, there's, there's more of it to come when Jesus returns to judge the hearts of all people and to, to, to bring true justice and to wipe away the tears of his children. 
all the other parables in this section, all the other parables talk about the kingdom as it is present in the here and now, uh, the, the, the kingdom that it, is, that it already exists on earth. Even, even the wheat and the weeds, which does talk about judgment, but, but it talks first about these, these two plants being able to grow up together before the harvest. All the other parables, they address the already not yet kingdom of God, but here the net talks about the kingdom that's coming. That, that part of the kingdom that is yet to arrive, the return of Jesus as judge of all. So, so what is it saying? What does it mean? The, the, the net is cast into the sea, which is the world, and the net collects all the fish. That's the people. That's us, good and bad. It collects all of us. And then the good fish, and then they're separated. The good fish are placed in a vessel, which is the, the, the kingdom of heaven, the coming kingdom of God. And then the bad fish are thrown into the abyss, to the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And again, these parables, they're working together to paint a full picture of what the kingdom of God will be like. And so, so, so this is coming right on the heels of those treasure parables that, that they find this valuable treasure and he sells everything he owns to keep it and the pearl that the merchant finds and he, and he sells everything he has just so he can have it. So in, in doing so, the treasure parables teach us what is the cost of being a disciple of Jesus? And the net teaches us what is the cost to not be one? So today we're gonna to talk about judgment. And I don't really want to, and you, I know you don't really wanna hear about it. And, and I think there's a, you know, there's a bashfulness there that, that I think is good. There's a humility there of not wanting to sit in judgment on other people, and that should be encouraged in our hearts. But, but we have to talk about it. We have to talk about it because no matter how we feel about judgment, it is a key component of our faith. And so we have to understand it if we want to talk about our faith with any credibility, and I hope we do. And also, and, and I, don't, I don't want you to take this the wrong way. I don't want you to go around starting to just like judge people and, and, and make that your thing. We're going to talk about that too a little later. But I, but I will say, it's not actually kind to never talk about judgment. You know, we're afraid of stepping on toes. Again, humility is absolutely essential. You shouldn't go out trying to bludgeon people with your faith. But it's also, it's, it's not actually kind to never tell them about your faith at all. Penn Jillette of, of, of Penn & Teller is an atheist comedian. I love how he puts it. He says this, I don't respect people who don't proselytize, who don't recruit people to their faith. I don't respect that at all. If, if you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them because it will make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Now I'm a preacher, so, so it shouldn't surprise any of you that I want you to be a Christian. Yes, spoiler alert. But, but I want you to understand, it's not because I hate people who aren't. No. No, much to the contrary. It's because I am called to love. Because I love them, because I love you. I, I, I actually believe this stuff. I really believe this stuff. And if I believe there's a heaven and a hell and that our choices are going to move us toward one or the other, and I didn't tell you that, I would be a terrible person. And I don't hate you. So we're going to talk about judgment. We're going to talk about some of the basics of our faith today. And for some, this will be a review. For some, it might be a surprise. So I want to begin by addressing a question that I, that I hear occasionally from people, sometimes from people who are just um, kind of exploring Christianity. They're not sure what they think yet. Some, sometimes from people who have been walking with Jesus for a really long time. And, and that question is, why is judgment necessary? Why is it necessary I mean, if Jesus says the greatest commandments are to love God and to love others, if, if we worship a God of grace, then why is judgment necessary? Why would God allow anyone, anyone to go to hell? 
What, what, what is that? And so let me say up front, there's just no possible way that I'm going to be able to give you a complete or satisfactory answer to that question in the 25 minutes that we have or any number of minutes. But what I can give you is OJ's email, and he loves, he loves that question. You should, <laughs> you should ask him that. But I, I, I think that this question, I think this question comes from a good place. I think this question comes from two places. And the first one is this. We can't reconcile a good God, the idea of a good God with a, with a God who would allow someone, anyone, to go to hell. And I have, I have wrestled with this since college, since I first became a Christian. This, this question has brought me closer to, to, to forsaking my faith than all of the pain and suffering that I've experienced combined. I've wrestled, I still wrestle with it. I'm not sure that I'm gonna get a satisfactory answer this side of heaven, but, but one thing I realized a few years back that has really helped my faith, you know, in the midst of wrestling with this idea, is the fact that, the fact that I don't want anybody to go to hell, that's actually a characteristic of God. That's actually his imprint on my heart. Scripture says God desires that none should perish. Second Peter 3, 9, no, no matter how bad they are, no matter how bad they've been, no matter what they've done, he wants them to come home. He wants them to go to hell. He wants it more than I do. And I don't know, I, I don't know why some people won't. But it does help me that I know God's more heartbroken about it than I am. Second, I, I think this question comes for maybe a misunderstanding of what we mean when we talk about the fact that we worship a God of grace. So I want to clear up confusion about that. We talk a lot about grace in the church, which we should. It is the key component of our faith. You know, it's the, it's the reason that we can be near God despite our rebellion. It's the only reason that we can be near God. No matter how bad we've been, no matter how good we think we are, faith is everything. Grace is everything to the Christian. But grace, grace is a very specific very definite thing in the Christian faith. Grace may have varying definitions outside the church, but inside the church it has only one, the unmerited favor of Jesus Christ on sinners who repent and believe. Outside the church it can have a bunch of definitions and that may stretch into other territories, but inside this is what grace means and we have to understand it. And there's one mix up in particular that I, that I do wanna address, which is this. We must not confuse grace with tolerance. We do not serve a tolerant God. God is a good God, God is a gracious God, but he is not a tolerant God. God is not tolerant of sin. That is not what grace means. We don't serve a tolerant God, we serve a forgiving God. And if you think about it, we don't, we don't actually want a God who is tolerant, not really. I mean, if God were tolerant of sin, there would be no hope for the poor, the oppressed, the, the, the victims of rape and violence and slavery and, and, and hate crimes and human trafficking and abuse and murder. If, if God were tolerant of sin, he could not offer justice to any of them. And he is a God of justice. And so he cannot tolerate sin. He is so holy. God is so holy that he cannot be in the presence of sin without the sinner being completely destroyed. His holiness would just kind of, kind of consume us like fire. There would be no hope for our survival. And, and listen, because this is important. If God were not so holy, heaven could not be so good. It couldn't. 
If he tolerated the presence of evil in heaven, then, then what hope would there be for us of experiencing any more, anything more than the brokenness that we already endure here on earth? We don't want a tolerant God. We want a good God. We want a, a gracious God. We want a holy God. We want a forgiving God, but not a God who tolerates the evil that destroys his children. But then, of course, the challenging reality that we have to face is none of us are good enough. None of us are good enough to be good enough for God. We all fall short. Do you believe that? I want you to think about that really for a second. Do, do you believe that nothing that you do could ever make you good enough for God? Do you know that you're a rotten fish? Make no mistake about it, this is a dividing line in our faith. What we believe about this actually matters. Because, you know, if I think I'm, I'm good enough, you know, I, I, if, if I think I'm good enough, you know, I'm a pretty good person, I'm good to my husband, I sponsor some kids in Africa, I'm generous, I'm, I'm just not that bad, you know? I, I, I'm certainly not bad enough that someone would have to die for me. I mean, I'm a pretty good person, right? Listen, if I believe I'm good enough, I will never put my faith and hope into a savior because I don't need one. Guys, we, we, we are actually really bad at assessing our own strengths and our own needs. There was a, a survey done of the teaching faculty at the University of Nebraska, and they asked these teachers to rate their teaching ability against their peers, so against the, this cohort of people that they worked with. It was maybe 100 teachers or so. And they found um, that 90% of the faculty rated themselves as above average. That's mathematically impossible, right? 90% can't be in the top 50. Uh, nearly 70% rated themselves in the top 25% of their peers. Uh, we're not good at this. You know, as a species, we're not, we're not good at this. Another study of students in Sweden and uh, the United States they asked them to rate their driving skills uh, among several dimensions like safe, unsafe, considerate versus inconsiderate. In the US cohort, 93% of students reported that they were above average drivers. And then also shockingly, 36% said they were still above average drivers even if they were texting while driving. Listen, if you're texting and driving, you are above average at a few things that I won't say in church, but none of them is driving. <laughs> we're, we're bad at this. We're the worst. I mean, we, we, we tend to minimize our own flaws. We maximize the flaws of others. It's a human thing. Listen, you may be a nice guy. You may be a real good, you may be a great guy. But have you ever been selfish? Even once? Have you ever gossiped? Even one word? Have you ever lied, even to spare someone's feelings? Have you always done the right thing immediately without delay? Because if not... Have you lived a perfect life? Are you perfect? Have you lived a per not just a good one, have you lived a perfect life? Because if not, you will not survive standing in the presence of a holy God. That little bit of guilt that's left in you, no matter how small it is, that, that little bit of guilt will go off like a theft alarm at the pearly gates. That little bit of guilt in you will not be allowed into heaven. How could it be heaven if it were? That's why judgment's necessary. 
How could there be hope for the poor, the orphan, the oppressed, the victimized if God did not evict all wickedness, all evil from his coming kingdom? The wickedness inside of us that makes us hurt one another, the, 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 the wicked systems and structures that institutionalize poverty and greed, none of this can make it into heaven. If it could, it couldn't be heaven. You understand, you can't be just a little bit sinful any more than you can be like a little bit pregnant, you know? You either are or you aren't. There is sin, and then there is the total absence of sin. And there is a gulf impassable between the two. Last time my mom was in town, she bought a glitter pumpkin for my daughter, Ember, which really surprised me, because um, I didn't think my mom hated me. Uh, <laughs> When I'm 80, I will be vacuuming glitter out of my carpet. It just, you can't get it all. It's just always, you know, it's like the Florida cockroach of the craft world. It's always there. You may not see it right now, but it's in there just making its way toward your face, you know? There's orange glitter on everything. If, if, I, if I devoted days and weeks to cleaning it, I would still never find all of it. It would still always be in there. Our, our house will just never be clean again. Our only option is, you know, buy a new house. That's, that's our option. Even, even the cleanest people among us, even the people who, 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 who devote their lives to following all the rules, to being clean, to cleaning the sin out of the house, they never get into all those little nooks and crannies where it's hiding. The house is still dirty. The only option is to buy a new one, a, a, a price, a ransom had to be paid for our sins. And so God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, who lived the, the sinless life that we should have lived and died the death our sins deserved to pay the price for us. In fact, Jesus, Jesus is the only fish that was worthy of being sorted into the vessel there was a gulf impassable between us and God and Jesus laid down his life. He laid down his body as the bridge that we walk across. There is no other way. I mean, if there was another way, why would God send his son to die? That's crazy. I mean, think about it. If you, know, if you love someone and they had a terminal illness, let's say OJ, you know, he has a terminal illness now and, and, and we say, and, and the doctor said, okay, Kaylee, you can, clear, you, can, you can fix OJ and you have to do one of two things. Uh, you could either eat kale, that's it, only kale for the rest of your life, or uh, I could take your firstborn. I mean, it would be pretty miserable to eat kale on kale sandwiches for the rest of my life, but I would do it gladly because nothing is worse than losing a child. I mean, why would God do that if it weren't absolutely necessary? There is no other way. And you know, maybe that sounds exclusive and maybe it sounds unkind, but, but here's the reality. It is pre precisely because God will not tolerate sin that none of his children will have to tolerate it in the kingdom that is to come. It is precisely because God will not tolerate sin that the abused and the oppressed have hope for a future where these sufferings do not exist. And because I don't hate you, I want you to know. Now, parenthetically, I want to be clear. I am not advocating for you to go out and be intolerant of sin in other people. God is not tolerant of sin. And so in our, in our pursuit of imitating him, maybe we uh, become intolerant of sin in others too. But we, we have to be very careful there. Because in scripture, we are rarely called to judge the sin of our brothers and sisters within the church. We are almost never called to judge people outside of it. Should we tell them about Jesus? Of course. 
Should we tell them the good news? Of course we should invite them in, absolutely, but never imagine for a second that it's our job to decide which fish are good and which are bad. That is God's office, and we should not aspire to it. I mean, that doesn't mean we, we should protect them from the reality of judgment. No, we need to be able to talk about that, to talk about our faith, but we must understand we are not the ones who will pronounce judgment. Remember, God, God expressly allowed the weeds to grow up among the wheat. That was his idea. God calls us to bear with one another. Ephesians 4.2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. God calls us to make an allowance for sins. Colossians 3.13, make an allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must also forgive others. Yes, we should be intolerant of sin first and foremost in ourselves. But in other people, that's God's job. I mean, if we want to condemn people, I really think we take our life in our hands. Frederick Bruner writes, the eagerness to crush others is the hallmark of Satan, him who loves to steal, kill, and destroy. God is not tolerant, God is forgiving, which is so much better. And, and while we should not tolerate sin in our own lives, we imitate God best when we forgive it in the lives of others. Last thing I wanna talk about, and then oh, we can be done with this. <laughs> I, th I think it's worth pointing out um, that this parable was given uh, to the disciples, not to the crowds, not to the general public. So this preview about the net and the separation. It's not meant to be a warning to all those people out there, all those unbelievers who, who want to you know, either get rid of their wicked ways or be cast into the abyss. It's, it's, it's meant for the disciples. This parable is meant for church people. And so what's the point of giving this parable to people who already profess to follow Jesus? Well, the point is that not everyone in the church is actually a follower of Jesus. I mean, you remember the, the parable of the sower, the seed falls on the path and it's gobbled up, the seed falls on the rocks and it's scorched, the seed falls on, uh, on the weeds and it's strangled, uh, and then the seed falls on the good soil and it, and it matures and it becomes fruit. What, what does that mean? What, that sounds, what? That sounds like one in four Christians is a Christian, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm being hyperbolic, but, but, but you understand what I'm saying. I'm the only one in my house who drinks coffee uh, my husband doesn't care for it. So on the weekends, I'll brew a pot of coffee and I'll just kind of work on it all day. Uh, even if it gets cold, I just throw it in the microwave or whatever. And we got this fancy coffee maker for our wedding in 2012. And, and, and by fancy, I mean it does the exact same thing that every coffee maker does, except it has a stainless steel carafe, so it's fancy. Um, so, I, you know, this a couple of weeks ago, I'm, I'm nursing my fancy carafe of coffee and it's early afternoon uh, and, I'm, and I, I've been working on it all day. And so I pour, I'm pouring the last little bit of the coffee out of the fancy craft into my coffee cup and, and something, I don't know what, like maybe some coffee grounds, a little lump kind of comes out of the craft into the coffee cup. So I set the craft down. Then I look down and the lump comes to the surface. Only now I notice that it is wiggling and it has six little legs and two little wings. And I realize with horror, there is a cockroach in my coffee. And the problem, y'all, is that I don't know how long it's been in the carafe. This is my third cup, right? <laughs> I know for some of you, this is the stuff of nightmares. My friend Allison's gonna faint when she listens to this sermon. Um, it was disgusting and, and it looked like coffee. It smelled like coffee, it tasted like coffee, but it was roach juice the whole time. 
In the parable of the wheat and the weeds, Jesus teaches us that God allowed the wicked and the righteous to grow up together in the church. And, 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 and the wheat and the weeds are, are indistinguishable from one another. Until the harvest, they may look, so, so what, what's the lesson here? Not everyone in the church is a Christian. They may look like one, they may talk like one, but only God knows what's on the inside. Only God knows the heart. This parable, so this parable is given to us to church people because Jesus doesn't want us to go the same way that the Pharisees went. They said, you know, God has to love me because I follow all the rules, so he has to love me. I'm a child of Abraham, so God has to love me. And Jesus is reminding us, listen, the wise believer will reflect. They won't take their salvation for granted. They won't take it for granted. Now, I'm not trying to scare you, but, but, but this parable, if we read it correctly, should inspire some holy fear. And that's a good thing. Proverbs says that the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The wise believer will reflect on their life. When's the last time you sat down and reflected on your life? I mean, really turned off all the devices, turned off the TV, just sat quietly alone in a room. <laughs> Takes work. I'm really bad at it. The wise believer will reflect and ask questions like, Am I cultivating good soil? Is my heart fertile ground? Or has it become the path? Has it become filled with weeds? Am I growing like wheat among weeds? Are they becoming more wheat-like? Or am I becoming more weed-like? Do I really see the gospel as a treasure that's worth more than anything that it asks me to give up? Do we reflect? In other words, am I loving God above all else? Am I loving his people too? And now, we know that none of us can earn God's favor. We know we can't earn his forgiveness. We know none of us are worthy. But while grace is opposed to effort, it is, it, I'm sorry, while grace is opposed to earning, it is not opposed to effort. Jesus asks for faith and love. And yes, only faith saves, but only love proves that faith is genuine. Our salvation, while it is absolutely a gift of God's grace through faith alone, our salvation, our saving faith will produce fruit. Is there fruit in your life? And, and the Bible spells out what that means. Is there love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control? Is there fruit in your life? And if not, are you sure you've stayed connected to the vine? Do you ever see a, a tree that's been planted too close to a driveway? You'll see one if you ever come to my house. Um, and it kind of pushes up the, the concrete and it becomes cracked and it pushes up all the rocks. Well, well, concrete is actually harder than tree roots are. But when those roots are, are connected to a healthy tree, they're gonna keep growing so much so that they will push past things that are made of stronger stuff than they are. If you're connected to the vine, you can't stop from producing fruit. You can't stop from growing. So, so please understand me, I'm not telling you to just work harder because uh, what that essentially means is I want you to squeeze fruit out of a dead branch and no one wants that. All, like the most you're gonna get is a raisin and those are gross, you know? I mean... <laughs> they are. Come on. 
our, our problem, I think, is that, you know, we neglect our branch, but then we try to squeeze fruit out in the heat of an argument or when someone's offended us or when we've hurt someone else and, and like the most I can muster sometimes is, well, Rob, I'm sorry you feel that way. I mean, that's not love or peace or patience or kindness. That's, that's dried fruit. Nobody wants to eat it. So I'm not saying squeeze out more fruit. I'm saying tend your branch. Tend your branch. Make sure it's connected to the vine that gives life because when it is, the fruit will come out of you all by itself. You'll be like that root pushing up the concrete. You can't keep it in. Throughout my research through this, for this sermon, I really, uh, I really found myself sweating which is a terrible thing because I switched to natural deodorant and that's just a whole mess uh, that, that no one wants to be involved with. But, um, but I, I found myself sweating uh, when I'm thinking about these questions like, you know, like, am I willing to, to give up everything I hold dear in order to embrace the truth of the gospel? Do I see fruit in my life? Am I, am I a bad fish? And I immediately feel inadequate, and I'm sure some of you do too. And as I, as I said, there, there is a holy fear that's good that, that reminds us that we are creatures, that we are so full of, of need, and that, and that God is so good that it's appropriate for us to tremble in his presence. But, but I don't, my intention today is not to make us afraid. I want us to make, I don't want to make us afraid. I want to ask us to be awake. I want to make us awake. Awake to our sin, awake to our need, awake to his grace. Because, because the, the reality is that there is an enemy. And he has told us over and over that there's always more time. He says there's always more time, you know, to, to, to pray, to reconcile, to serve, to repent. There's, there's always more time. And those whispers can, can lull our faith to sleep the September um, when I had my, my birthday, uh, I became one year older than my brother Jason was when he died. What time do we think we have? Death is gonna come for each and every one of us and it, it may not come as abruptly for me as it did for my brother, but it's coming all the same. And the enemy does not want me to be awake to that reality. Wake up, stay awake tend your branch, even, listen, even if your branch is sick, even if you're sitting here and, 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 and you feel how dry those leaves are, listen, it'll come back to life if you connect it to the vine. But whether we do or we don't, we're all gonna be gathered into the net in the end. Every single one of us is gonna endure that final separation. But, but if you're connected to him, then we have a savior who sees that struggling fish in the hand of the fisherman and says, that one's mine. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you did not leave us to our own devices, that you did not leave us alone, that you were here, that you came for us, that you rescued us, that you built that bridge for us to come back home. Lord, you know each and every heart in this room. You know the things that are weighing on them. You know what they're afraid of, Lord. You know how dry some of their branches have become. 
Lord, I pray that you would allow us to connect to you in a meaningful way, that you would breathe life into us, that you would let your living water flow back into our hearts and that those branches would come back to life and that that fruit would begin to flow from us as it does like those roots that won't stop growing. Lord, would you give us that grace this morning? And and Lord, if there's anyone here who, who didn't know there was a bridge, who didn't know there was a gap, who didn't know that there was a sacrifice that we had to walk across, Lord, would you invite them into your kingdom today? Would you connect them with one of the prayer team or with one of the pastors that they would be able to pray and invite you into their hearts, Lord, because we want to welcome them home with you. Thank you, Lord, and we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope, amen.